This episode of I Save That Podcast is sponsored by Ultra Drape UG PIV Barrier and Securement, the innovative dual action dressing designed to promote no touch aseptic technique. Ultra Drape ensures patient safety by eliminating the need for gel at the catheter insertion site, which can lead to increased risk of cross contamination and securement failure. Learn more at parkerlabs.com backslash ultradrape. Dress for success with ultradrape for UGPIV. Hello and welcome to the inaugural episode of season four of the I Save That podcast. It's crazy to say we're on season four. It's a new year as well. It's 2021. Thank goodness. Finally. So happy new year to everyone who's listening. I'm Eric Seger, AVA Director of Communications and Editor of the Journal of the Association of Vascular Access. And as always, I'm joined by AVA Director of Clinical Education, Judy Thompson. Judy, we made it to 2021. We're in a new season of the podcast. How are you doing? (laughs) I am doing wonderfully. Thanks. It is great to be in 2021. It's even better to have shed 2020. And hopefully, think, hopefully, hopefully, we're going to continue. Go I think ahead. everyone can agree with that. Um, I, I've yet to hear a disagreement on that that topic. Right. So as we jump into 2021 here, we have a great topic of ultrasound and peripheral IVs, which clinicians in vascular access world know quite a bit about, but there's always more that we can learn. So Judy and I are joined today on the show with uh, by Dr. Nat Kitty-Sarapong, who's an attending physician at Kaiser Permanente out in California. And she also did ultrasound training um, in New York. So she's, and also someone AVA members know very, very well, uh, Dr. Nancy Moreau. She's a clinician, consultant, and as we all know, the owner of Pick Excellence. Ladies, how are you? Welcome to the show. Hello, hello. Glad to be here. Same here. Thank you for having us. Absolutely. We're excited to have you. And this is a great topic because all the rage in, in vascular access seems to be ultrasound guided PIVs. And there's interest across the country on these, the world, in fact. Let's just jump right in, Dr. Moreau, Nancy. I've talked to you for years and years, but we have a new face in the crowd today with Dr. Nat. And it's exciting because you're an ED physician, better yet. And I think the challenges we have in PIVs these days, you guys are the first people to see it down in the ED. And some of the challenges are are incredible. So when you're thinking about difficult access in the ED, what are some of the challenges that you faced? Oh, in the emergency department, you know, we have a lot of what we call vascular paths. Um, People whose um, veins um, are either very friable or very deep, um, or people who lack um, or have a paucity of fates, diabetics, um, people on chemotherapy or radiation, um, people who've had um, multiple like uh, attempts at access and uh, um, by our nurses and have come many times because you know they um, are chronically ill with their comorbidities. We also have patients that are that can be combative. Our elderly patients, some of them, some of them that have dementia, delirium, or our psych patients in the ED, that access is partially hard because they unfortunately have a current like psychiatric illness that doesn't allow them to understand what's going on. Special needs uh, children as well. That's another uh, population or developmental delayed uh, children or adults. You know, those, so those are. 
the types of challenging people we've met. And usually our nurses know them. Um, they'll usually ask the doctors, they listen, I know this patient, like we can't get access. And that's where the um, ultrasound guided IVs really become helpful because if you can't get it via ultrasound or our nurses, the next step is love to try to avoid, you know, especially because if it's not for long-term access, um, it's nicer to pull us than it is in the next step. <laughs> Nancy, I know you've done a lot of research in this and what about the variability in the practice? What do you see across the nation, across the world, as far as some of the data that you've you put together? Yeah, we've definitely considered that as a an area that needed study. And so um, we performed a, a survey of physicians, nurses, and others who were involved clinically in inserting catheters with ultrasound guidance in order to try and determine what kind of variability was happening within their practice. And what we found from the more than 1,400 responses was that there's a huge amount of variability, not only in kind of the way they perform the procedure and the type of ultrasound that they use, but in the supplies, in um, the application of policies or, or not even having policies for consistency with the types of safety products and other things that they're using. You know, uh, variability in things like the type of gel that they're using, whether they're doing sterile or unsterile or, or aseptic insertions, um, probe covers, cleaning of probes, or folks that just grab whatever supplies that are available at the time tends to be the most common. And once people learn how to do ultrasound guided PIV, it, it, it's kind of like, oh, you're off and running, you're on your own, and there's not a whole lot of follow-up or competency assessment. So those are kind of the, the variable practices that we found in the survey and the one that was published in the Journal of the Association for Vascular Access last year. Absolutely. And I think all of us that have been in the hospital have seen that variability. And there's an immense variability in training as well. From Absolutely. none to exceptional. Yeah. So um, I wish we had we a lot more a, of the exceptional. We did a follow-up survey <laughs> at the end of the year that actually um, measured some of the responses according to the types of training that they got. And we were able to quantify some of that variability in training, anything from nothing to on the job to see a couple and do a couple and you're done to a full-blown training program, which was not very common. Did you see in the data or what you, you put together a difference in successes and confidence by the clinicians? I, I think what we saw was a lack of measurement. That Okay, well, that's common <laughs> again. Yeah, across the board, there's very little um, uh, quantitative measurement being done on success rates. I mean, Dr. Nat and I were talking about this just yesterday, um, where it's very hard to track it based on our electronic medical records, um, honesty with documentation. Uh, Absolutely. And even lack of documentation where they didn't even document that an ultrasound guided insertion was done. And so, or to be able to, or, yeah. 
And that's one reason we're working on an ultrasound guided PIV protocol for Kaiser that hopefully will measure some of that as well as other things. Very good, very good. You talked about protective covers and you talked about different supplies. So let's talk a little bit more about that because I've been very involved in either writing or doing research on disinfectants for ultrasound. There's talk about variability in practice. Oh my goodness. From absolutely not wiping down a probe to high level disinfection. So there is, there's a a bunch. Let's talk about protective covers to start with. How about uh, toss it to Nancy and then we'll toss it over to Dr. Nat. Yeah. So there's a wide variety of, of ways to protect the transducer or probe. Um, any, I've seen the variety being that they use a chlorhexidine wipe on the probe and then have it naked on the skin. Um, there, there's barrier protection where the probe and the gel is behind a dressing. And there's certainly short probe covers that are sterile or unsterile and long probe covers that are typically sterile. So uh, there's a number of different ways to protect the probe, but I think everybody can agree that we do see the ultrasound probes as a source of contamination and one that we need to have some sort of cover or safety on. I know Dr. Nat has a variety of experiences. Do you wanna go through some of the stuff that you've seen? Oh yeah, during my residency training, you know, I developed a really uh, good habit of um, using like the Tegaderm because back then we didn't have all these like schnazzy probe covers that they have now it was either the long probe cover that you use for central line which you know in inner city detroit where i trained it um they can get a little bit pricey because you have to break open a kid and things like that and um the other option was um uh, tegaderms the thing with the tegaderm is they have a sticky surface i was always taught use a sterile gel and then put the tegaderm on top of the sterile gel so you have like the interface of the gel on the probe and technically like a, a covering the peripheral guided um, IV access isn't a sterile procedure. So using the tugoderm cover um, was uh, trying to keep it as like close to clean and um, aseptic as we could as we could back then. The other thought was using a sterile glove, um, which I've also used. Um, you get a sterile surgical glove, you put the gel on and you use that as a cover. Why? Because one, it's cheaper than using the long probe cover. Two, it's less cumbersome than the long probe cover. So that was another technique that we used during residency and fellowship. And now in the last um, years that, uh, that I've been in practices and attending, I've seen a couple of things that came up. There's a company called Sheets. They actually have um, two types of covers, a short and a long, sterile, non-sterile probe cover. I prefer the short because it's less cumbersome. And the other one is uh, a sticky. It's like a patch that actually goes on top of the probe. And all of them work very well um, and have really good visualization with the uh, ultrasound when you're doing peripheral guided IVs and those all provide protection and help with sterility and they don't cost very much and also the good thing is unlike the tegaderm it doesn't damage the uh, rubber surface of um, the ultrasound probe and then of course we have um uh, I've also tried um Parker Labs uh, ultra ultra drip which I really like because you know the gel is actually on top of the cover itself, doesn't touch the surface, and it's less messy. So those are 
um, the variety of things that I've seen. I've seen those as well. I know I've seen condoms used that they would oh, yes. normally use in OB <laughs> on an ultrasound yes. probe. So um, generally that word doesn't come off in our podcast. So hello, folks. <laughs> Welcome to 2021. Things are going to be better. <laughs> yeah, well, you, you know, the, the central line covers that they use, they, we call them condoms too. Um, right. Yeah, very right. large, floppy, like surface. So, but, you know, yeah. the... Uh, so but we, it's also we, about visualization, you know, being able to have good resolution through these probe covers and things, you know, we want to have safety, but we also want to be able to see really well. And sometimes the sterile gloves, depending on how you position them. So yep. um, I want to be able to see really well. I agree. I use Same. both, uh, but and they have challenges for sure, but they're better than a naked probe. Oh, so, yes, um, I agree. For sure. I, um, for sure. Definitely in the years I've um, been in residency fellowship, I've, I've seen um, other providers use uh, uh, uncovered probes, which, you know, we've always tried to discourage because, I mean, we it's it's definitely like a pet peeve of mine. You have to clean the probe before, you have to clean it after, and whether or not you have a cover or not, but it's worse for me, like if you don't have a cover, it's like you have to have some kind of covering. It's, yeah. That gives me the willies. It's like, oh my god, if I to see that just yeah. scares me. <laughs> me too, because <laughs> I'm so always the one chasing around cleaning them after. Since I'm like part of the job of the ultrasound director uh, at my facility is maintaining my uh, machines. So yeah, <laughs> it's awesome. not fun for me either. <laughs> I bet not. I bet not. Let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsor. Recent polling of vascular access, emergency, and other clinicians investigating UGPIV practices revealed inconsistencies in the use of supplies for probe protection. These variations can jeopardize patient safety. UltraDrape UGPIV barrier and securement dressing was designed to provide a standardized approach to venous access that can help ensure patient safety. UltraDrape's innovative design facilitates aseptic technique for the clinician by separating the transducer and gel from the insertion site to help eliminate cross-contamination. UltraDrape greatly reduces the chance of securement failure and is also cost-effective when compared with more supply-heavy protocols. To meet the mandate for infection control during UGPIV procedures, dress for success with UltraDrape. Learn more at parkerlabs.com backslash UltraDrape. So let's switch gears just a little bit. Let's talk about the god-awful pandemic we're in and what kind of specific challenges are you seeing based off that, vascular-wise? I think that as people are more uh, getting more sicker as the pandemic goes along, the population that comes in, um, you see a bit more higher number of people with uh, difficult access uh, because the people with more chronic illnesses that I described before, the diabetic, COPD, like heart patients, things like that, chemo patients, they get sick with COVID, you know, um, they're at higher risk for being more critically ill. And those are the patients usually with difficult access. I think that like, you know, more of those patients are coming in. The other thing is with the pandemic being worldwide, you see a decrease in supplies. My facility being part of like a large uh, group of hospitals, luckily they, they have the funding and they have the supply chain. We haven't seen 
um, the lack of supply that some of my colleagues in other parts of the country have seen. But there is a, a drop in the supply chain for things beyond PPE, uh, the different components of like uh, uh, accessing IV, like the ticketerms and like the kits and things like that. Th- those are the two things I've seen with the pandemic. But the logistics of getting new equipment through um, in your hospital also come into play. So that takes some time as well. So those are the kind of things that we've seen. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's good to know that you have supplies because a lot of the hospitals around the country have really had a challenge with that. I know we talked about education a little bit before it being lacking and very inconsistent. And as far as your facility, what, what are you doing for training? Uh, so at my facility, I've been trying to work with the nurses and the physicians. I, when I first started at Kaiser, I already uh, created a protocol because from my fellowship uh, background, that was uh, part of uh, some of our projects is uh, to create a protocol once you reach a new hospital as to things like um, ultrasound education um, and um, techniques. The problem was um, just getting it proved and um, getting it uh, launched because with with the nurses, I've had some difficulty with connecting and approving with like the unions and um, with the physicians, you know, part of the challenge is we work full schedules um, and having to take some time out of um, their monthly schedule to come in for ultrasound education, especially in our system where it's not billed the same as other systems. Um, we don't uh, bill for ultrasound guided procedures, so there's a little less of incentive, but there's a lot of interest. So my uh, goal has been, um, one, to develop the uh, uh, sessions, the live sessions with uh, for the nurses, as well as for the physicians, but then COVID hit, and so mm-hmm. live sessions kind of went out the door. So what I did was I actually write a department newsletter. Part of the uh, thing that I do with the newsletter is I have an ultrasound section on techniques. And during shifts for now, since you know we need so much manpower, what I've been doing is um, just assisting everybody with like learning as we go until we can actually get the classes um, uh, started up. And then the other issue that we've come into is how to how to make sure that everybody is doing these uh, procedures in the in the proper fashion, taking away bad habits, learning new habits, and quantifying how good your technique is. So my uh, part of the protocol is that you have to have at least um, twenty five successful scans or IV starts, for example, in order to be really like um, certified. And usually what I do is like, I have them save the image for me, the needle tip in the vessel and the needle tip like before entry, perhaps be good just to kind of see as far as reviewing, I'm the only one reviewing. So um, that's still a work in progress (laughs) for um, a large, yeah, for a large number of physicians and nurses. So that's still in progress right now. Very good. Well, I'd love to talk to you more about that in the future because I'm really interested in that. And I know it's it's something that's so important because our folks need to get trained right to do yeah. every aspect of it right. There's nothing you can miss. You, you have to be able to do all of it. Clean properly before, clean properly after, be able to insert on the first stick and make it as painless as possible. 
So I think preparation is the most important thing. A lot of physicians and nurses forget because we're all in the moment and we're all just trying to rush through and get things done because we're all so busy that preparation is really important. Get all your equipment ready at the same time, like so you're not reaching for things and asking for things. Make sure your person's arm is like positioned correctly so you're not like reaching over and like losing your mark because very slight movement, you, you're going to miss it or you're right. going to puncture through. And like you said, doing it the, the least number of times because who the heck wants to be poked more than once, you know? So, Nobody. And also where you insert makes a huge amount of difference. Nance, you want to talk to, about that a little bit? Yes. Yeah, definitely. Um, the selection of the vein that we use is important and contributes to not only the successful insertion, but the, the even more important longer dwell or being able to have a reliable device that will continue working. So many of our ultrasound guided PIVs fail within the first couple of hours. And that's, that's due to the fact that clinicians um, often will just hit the vein and not continue to advance the catheter in the center of the vein or not use catheters that are long enough. And so infiltration is very, very common with these ultrasound guided PIVs. But selection within the mid forearm is, is considered to be uh, the most um, reliable as far as reducing complications and having that, that lasting power. Absolutely. Nobody wants it to fail right away. And, uh, but that should be also part of our competency measure that not only are they successful inserting it, but that it actually lasts for more than a few hours after the insertion. Because, <laughs> you know, there are just a number of factors that are associated with a good IV insertion and, and ultrasound complicates it even more. The, the training initially, as well as ongoing, is just so important and is something that we need to factor into our educational programs and into our you know, outcome monitoring processes. I think the competency model is is vital. And to your point, yeah, the flat aspect of the forearm, staying away from the upper arm, which I know they're tempting. They're bigger. They're they're beautiful, but we have to stay out of there. So ladies, you guys have been amazing. I want to end asking you both kind of a, a similar question. What about, um, what are some things, uh, let's say two things that you could identify that would decrease risk for our patients and increase success in ultrasound guided PIVs. We'll go with Dr. Knapp first for ultrasound guided PIVs. I think that, uh, like I said before, preparation is really important. Knowing what your limitations are, using the right equipment. I think that gathering all your supplies, make sure you have like a like the table ready to rest the arm in for your comfort and the patient's comfort, making sure that the table is to your height, you're not bending down making sure that you have the right angiocatheter. As Nancy said, a couple of things that make an IV unsuccessful is you're going for a vein that's too small and therefore very too, uh, very friable. Vessels that are less than three or four centimeters tend to have worse success rates and higher failure rates. Vessels that are deeper than one and a half centimeters. Um, that's why the upper arm in some people is more difficult and tend to fail more. However, there are in uh, the industry longer angiocaps. There's the ultra long, there's a midline. You could use those type of angiocaps um, to help with length. And knowing the, the concept of the depth of your vessel um, and the needle insertion 
we use what we call a Pythagorean theorem. That's why that one centimeter um, number is really important because as you go deeper, the needle length has to be much longer. So if you're going into like a vessel that's two centimeters or deeper, your needle catheter length has to be more than two centimeters itself going into three centimeters. And there's not many angiocatheters um, before that, that, that could do that. So like a regular angiocatheter, you can't, that's why they, there's not going to be enough catheter in the upper arm, for example, if the vessel is much deeper than that. So just knowing your limitation, proper um, preparation, I think yeah. those are the most um, important uh, things. Thanks. How about you, Nancy? Yeah, I, I absolutely support everything that, that Dr. Nat has just talked about in terms of getting the right length of catheter. I mean, we've got a fair amount of research that shows us that we really need to have at least half, if not two thirds of the catheter in the vein in order to be maintained effectively. Dr. Ball and others out of the University of Michigan have published very good papers that everyone should be aware of. But I think in terms of reducing risk, we need to standardize our practice, that the insertion procedure and the supplies that are used need to follow a policy that the hospital has created and that there needs to be some enforcement and um, measurement of compliance with that policy. And that's just not being done consistently. The, the standardization and the procedure makes it so that each person is doing it the same way, using the same safety, the covers, everything. That's, that's all really necessary. And then I think that my second point as far as risk and improving success is to have good simulation training. Part of what I feel is necessary is that we do need to have some sort of measurement of success uh, and competency with our procedure to the point that everybody really should be about 80%. And if we can quantify and measure the, the success of our inserters, then those that fall below 80%, not as a punitive measure, but as a, a, um, a method to encourage them to go back to the simulation training, to get a few more tips and tricks, what I've found over the years is that there's very few clinicians that actually get formal training with ultrasound, that um, very few of them that take any courses or other things. They may see a YouTube video, they may talk to people, but it's kind of hit or miss. And so improving the education and making sure that we have an adequate amount of simulation training and that's available even after the initial training I think could make a big difference in reducing risk and gaining success along with gaining that compliance with the procedure for standardization. I think that, you know, once a year refresher courses for our physicians, which was what I was trying to advocate, where they have somebody that tells them the basics of why ultrasound physics is an understanding that it's important and utilizing blue phantom. It may not be the same consistency when you're inserting an IV into a blue phantom as it is into a person's um, arm, but it is um, the best, one of the best things to um, work on and um, to get practice on. And then to be able to open up practice sessions during the year for physicians and and other clinicians, nurses and NPs who are interested, I think that's really important to reinforce knowledge and to keep that 80% up because you don't use it, you lose it. Agreed. And I, I'm actually a, lot sting, a little bit stingier than you, Nance. I think it should be 90. 
I, if you're yeah. that patient, I mean, 20% of them are going to get multiple sticks or poor yeah. practice. So I think, I think it should be 90 and again, not punitive, but if you can't mm -hmm. hit 90%, then there's a lot of other tasks you can do. And Agreed. leave that, leave that 90 and better to the people oh, that you know, do 90 and better. The key is really to be able to follow that needle tip. You know, and like Dr. Sure. Nett was saying with the blue phantom and be, being able to use a phantom, it's not about hitting the vein. It's about being able to follow the leading edge of the needle at all times, fanning and moving your probe and actually tracking that needle point. That in my workshops and other things that I do, that, that is the most important area for people to learn. And when you go back for refresher training or when you need some more simulation, that's the issue. Not following the point of the needle will mess you up every time. That hand-eye coordination is actually the hardest thing <laughs> to do in ultrasound guided IVs because yeah. people have bad habits. Nurses, like if you have the training, like have been a nurse, like the, you know, they see the flash and then they just make advance a catheter. And the thing is, <laughs> the reality is, you don't know where that catheter tip is. It that's why you can have posterior wall puncture, and that's why mm -hmm. um, these peripheral IVs fail. Okay, that's why that that hand-eye technique and um, forcing yourself to follow the needle through and making very minute movements is the key and the hardest uh, actually um, uh, talent to, to really hone. Watching the screen instead of watching what you're doing with your hands. The hands don't make any difference anymore. You have to watch the screen. Yeah. Now the, the thing with this though, that we have all keep talking about, there's not one failure point. There, the entire procedure is the failure point. So you can't important. do anything wrong. So with that, I can't thank you guys enough. This was super fun. And I've loved the conversation and I think we need to continue it another day, but uh, I want to thank you for your time and expertise and um, safe practice. Be safe out there. Great to be here. Thank Thanks you. Eric. You can see the entire AVA network calendar on the AVA website at www.avainfo.org which is also where you can join AVA or donate to the AVA Foundation. AVA is all over social media. You can follow the Association for Vascular Access on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Pinterest. Make sure you're subscribed to the I Save That podcast on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, Pandora, or Google Play Music for our Android users. You can also find direct links to all episodes on each of these streaming services by visiting avainfo.org podcast. The topics discussed on the I Save That podcast are purely for informational purposes. You should personally seek the guidance of clinicians before making any decision that affects your health or the health of, of your patients. Listeners of this podcast are advised to do their own due diligence when it comes to making vascular access decisions. Our goal is to inform and entertain the healthcare landscape while giving you a starting point for your discussions with your own clinicians and professional advisors. By listening to this podcast, you agree that the hosts, our guests, our sponsors, and the Association for Vascular Access are not responsible for the success or failure of your health, your career, or any decision you make related to any of the information we have presented. The I Save That podcast contains segments of copyrighted music that was not specifically authorized to be used, but is protected by federal law and the Fair Use Doctrine, as cited in Section 107 of the U.S. Copyright Act. If you have any specific concerns about this broadcast or our position on fair use defense, please contact us at podcast at avainfo.org. 
No part of this broadcast shall be reproduced, transmitted, or sold in whole or in any part or in any form without prior written consent from the Association for Vascular Access.